From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition. We are doing these Zoom calls during the age of pandemics. We've been doing it for a few months. We're going to keep it going. We will do the calls weekly, spending about the first half hour talking about the coronavirus and the second half hour talking about sports. Of course, these things mix, which is why we do it. But we've got the whole crew here. Shane Jensen, City Center, Philadelphia, Audie Weiner out on the main line. Eric Bradlow in parts unknown, a little bit of time away. And this is Cade Massey out in Bucks County. Gentlemen, always glad to be here. And I'm always interested in the world of coronavirus. What has caught your eye? Well, I tell you, I'll tell you what has caught my eye, which is really um, and a remarkable thing, is the number of tests, positive tests among the athletes who are coming back yeah, from, right. from coming back to their schools. It's insane, and it, 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 it it's and they're not sick, and they're not getting it at school because they're getting it from wherever they were. But it ranges from a, from one percent, but almost as high as five or ten percent. What's an example, Artie? Where, where are you seeing Well, like Clemson, for example, they had a huge number of, uh, of positive tests among their football players. And I'll just throw another one out. One of my Moneyball uh, Academy high school students, they started up um, football practice in the spring, sometime in June, after being closed down in Mississippi, this was. And they tested all their players, and 25 of the students showed up positive out of like, the football team. Just the high school football team. 25 yeah, right. of them. And, um, well, and he reported, of course, nobody had where everybody was asymptomatic, but a large number of them couldn't didn't have any taste or smell for a short amount. Of right. Time. Hmm. So, Adi, what are we also seeing on the on the professional side? Because I believe the NBA did some pretty comprehensive testing, and I, I'm making this up, but I think maybe five percent, or maybe that's maybe that's too high. MLB the, was very MLB, encouraging as well. Well, right. Except for the it was fact like only they, like one point two percent, I think. But Shane, yeah. it wasn't comprehensive. Um, no, and it, in fact, it, one it, of the it, biggest. It, one of the biggest issues has been the delays out yes. of the MLB. My impression is that they, they changed the steroid testing center out in Utah to coronavirus testing, but yet then they still had these delays where they guys tested on Friday and they still had results on Monday. They didn't work over the holiday weekend, this kind of ridiculous stuff. Oh no. Yeah. It's not encouraging in the sense that the pipeline seems to be working at the kind of scale they'll need it to, to kind of keep, you know, have the season sort of, you know, to, to kind of go live during the season. I was just, you know, the overall rates seemed pretty low, at least relative to some of these other uh, leagues okay. that we're hearing. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be surprised about. Let me say why. Um, I'm certainly not surprised that give conditional on having a positive test that, you know, young 19 to 22 year olds are not getting severely ill. That part, I think we have a fair amount of data to suggest that. Um, two, we have a fair amount of data to suggest they can be spreaders and possibly even super spreaders. So I have no surprise there. Um, and third, given what we're seeing in the country now where 50,000 people are testing positive a day, which means we know it's much higher than that. And, and also that the age is dropping, that we're seeing a lot of positive tests among that population. So to me, um, you put college students there. Um, I don't know why their marginal rate of a positive test would necessarily be lower than the general population. You could argue they're maybe in contact with more people, so maybe higher. I'm not surprised that they're not getting heavily ill. And I'm also not surprised that in some sense, um, it's going to continue to grow amongst the universities. So I don't think that data, at least to me, maybe I'm missing some, that data hasn't surprised me in the slightest. Eric, does it, does it lower your probabilities of college football happening in the fall? I was already at a very low number. Okay. Um, I know what's interesting is the challenge also is going to be, there could be, as you pointed out, I think two weeks ago, Kate, there may end up being differential schedules because of conference. Like, for example, right. I know the Ivy League, as an example, we're in the Ivy League. They're announcing tomorrow. Um, what do you do when you're supposed to play Harvard and Harvard's 100% online? Right. And only freshmen mm -hmm. are coming in the fall and seniors, like, how do you construct a team? Do you use all of your allowable exemptions for athletes? Like, what do you do there? So uh, what do you do when you're supposed to play a team in Houston where that's a hot spot right now, and maybe I'm making it up. They obviously don't play Amherst, but maybe in some sports they do. Where in Amherst, Massachusetts, maybe the rate is very low and the school is more open. Well, so, look, we're already yeah. we're already there to some extent. I, I, you know, I'm not I'm not a big MLS person, but I noticed that FC Dallas 
backed out of the MLS's back tournament. They're, they're, right. they're restarting, they're rebooting their, their season with this big tournament. And FC Dallas was scheduled to have the opening game, I think, this Thursday. And they just backed out. And I noted it because we're going to see a lot of this. And college football probably is the best example. We're going to see teams just say, you know, they're going to play four games and they're going to say, we're out, we're done. We can't play with 15 guys off our two deep out. And so I think it's the very first example we've seen of schedules are going to start getting fried. And other, and other than both professional and college football, almost every single league has restricted their schedule or, or, or their structure uh, in some way that kind of is trying to kind of cut down on travel and trying to um, – you know, make things a little bit more kind of like local geographically, you know, the, obviously the NHL and NBA are doing this hub city plan and baseball has, you know, basically restricted itself to only within division as well as a little bit of a cross division has, I'm, I'm a little surprised that there hasn't been more discussion in the college football schedule. Why wouldn't they just kind of stay within conference for this season? Right. Just do a conference schedule. I, 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 it feels to be like, all of football, college and NFL, has kind of had their head in the sand. They're saying, mm-hmm. well, we're going to plow ahead. It's going to be fine. We're going to figure it out. And they're not making these kind of contingencies that I know of. I, I, I had privy to one conversation among an NFL team with an, a, a, a D1 coach. And he's just like, you know, they're working what's immediately in front of them. They're not making those kinds of longer-term contingencies. Now, maybe it's happening at some point. Surely somebody's thinking about it. But it feels like football is just – they're acting as if it's more inevitable than it actually is. Yeah. So let me just give you an example. Also it's, it's part of it is also, uh, I'll use what Adi said maybe last week or the week before, which is, you know, it also doesn't smell right in the following sense. Like I'm in the state of Massachusetts currently, anybody that comes in from certain States has to quarantine for 14 days. All right. So how is that going to happen? So, you know, some, uh, you know, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, hot, whatever it is, they come into Massachusetts. So now, I mean, you're going to have to go to the governor. The governor's going to give an exemption to a football team not to quarantine when they're making every other citizen of their state having to quarantine or other people. I just, uh, yeah, my probability has gone down. Well, I mean, I mean, for the general public, it's completely unenforceable. Right. It's just that, you know, for, right. for players with like players with like a national profile, we're actually paying attention. Those are the one you know, type of play, the type of person that actually needs the exemption. Let me follow up. I think, um, I actually think that a lot of these things will change. Uh, one of the things that we haven't really gotten a grip on in the country is that the Northeast, we, we went through this. I mean, this was a, a uh, the, the virus hit us like a ton of bricks, particularly New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, um, to a lesser extent, but still significant Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware, Massachusetts, um, and we're looking at very low case numbers, certainly relatively speaking, but even absolutely. If you compare what's going on in the Northeast compared to England, Canada, we look very much the same. For three months, the rest of the country wasn't really showing very much. And it was around, late, it was around Memorial Day weekend. I remember, Cade, you, you brought it to our attention. You're like, something's going on in Austin and Dallas. It's starting to pick up. Mm-hmm. And because we're sensing it much, much earlier than we ever did out in the, in the Northeast, it really was running around throughout February and kind of gaining steam. Um, it's going to end, I think. Um, the rest of the country is going to be all, all more or less on the same playing field, probably by the end of August, which is just right in the time when the NFL will be starting to play. That should hopefully make everybody kind of more equal, and, that's, okay, and, Adi, and that will make it easier. Let's hear more about this. That's the most optimistic thing I've heard anybody say. Oh, I'm, time I'm, I'm not saying yeah, we're going to play. I'm just saying that I – yeah. But you're, it's the but same page, the same page that we're on up for, you know, going to be some middle ground where actually it's going to be Pennsylvania, Ohio, the Northeast coming up to some of the rates that like, you know, Florida and Texas are experiencing. Well, I'm not sure. So Pennsylvania is a funny place because it's a giant state, as we, you know, if you look at the geography. So um, we on the east side are much more like the Northeast. Them on the other side are much more like the Midwest. So right. uh, Pennsylvania actually as a, as a state, we're going very uh, – the east side is going very slowly down. But Pittsburgh is starting to grow again. That's Pittsburgh silent. had nothing. They had nothing. They, for, for months, were, were, were very, very low. And all of a sudden, they're shooting up. So I'm, I'm just – what I'm essentially saying is that uh, I don't know how long it's going to take before the south and the west um, start to go back down. But I would guess about six weeks, six to eight weeks, will bring them back down to where we are. We are more or less right now. And the, the wild card is whether we'll start going up again. Okay, hold on. So let's just talk about the South and, 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 uh, and, and West for a second, because that's a pretty strong call. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you're a forecaster and you're actually also one, for those of you who don't know, Adi 
is grabbing a lot of data and looking at things and modeling and trying to make empirically you know, informed observations. So the best case I can make uh, is that there are a lot more mask regulations now. There's laws, uh, Texas even has said wear a mask. And simultaneously, increasingly, the science seems to suggest, does suggest that, that airborne transmission is the most important and masks are very effective. So at the same time that the regulations are slowly kind of belatedly being put into place, science is saying that's going to make a lot of difference. So optimism would be, look, these things are delayed. What's, you know, the die is cast for the people up to today, and that's going to what the next two weeks are going to look like. But after that, maybe we'll see the impact of these masks kick in and we'll see and we'll get over the hump and this thing will start coming down. So is that the, the, the source of your optimism or is it somewhere else? I'm not sure, sure what I'm saying is all that optimistic. I'm, I'm basically saying that the curves that we've been looking at have a, once you get to this acceleration point, which it took about six weeks to see in Arizona and Texas because we were monitoring so much more closely than we were in New York. Once you get to this massive acceleration point we're seeing right now, it takes about six weeks before you're back down. And that seems to be the case all over the world. And that's just, I'm just extrapolating. I'm not saying it won't come back again, but I'm saying but the, it just but seems that, to be that. That was the case in Europe and in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got that down under like stay at home orders. That's right. Right. So, I mean, and, right. and I mean, like mm. under like, you know, just increased mask, like, you know, regulations that may, people may not <laughs> even comply with in those areas. Are we really going to see that same kind of like decrease over the same time span when, when they're obviously not going to be under stay at home orders? Well, here's the, here's the wild card. You're absolutely right. If they're not under stay at home orders, it could take a hell of a lot longer. Once people, once if and when, I should say if, not, not necessarily, some people would say when, others would say if the death rate starts to fly, then you're going to have people staying home. Death rate or just deaths? De- well, de- death, when I say deaths, I mean deaths per, per, I would like to scale it by number of people. But okay. once you start seeing large numbers of people dying, yeah. as we saw in New York City, it scares the living shit out of you, to excuse my language, and right. you are much more willing to stay home once that happens. Right. Yeah, so here's the challenge I see is that what we haven't yet seen, and maybe there is data on this, but what we haven't yet seen is where large groups of people who have conformed, maybe you've seen some in New York and Northeast, maybe this is what's happening, where it's not that the, I mean, people have started wearing masks, people have social distance. Obviously there was a stay at home order. I wanna see the stay at home order released, lifted. I wanna see a month, six weeks, eight weeks, where people are actually conforming in their behavior to the CDC guidelines. And let's see it not go up. Because what I'm worried about, Audie's projecting is, even if things were to go down in the next six or eight weeks, if things loosen up and behaviors loosen up, then things could skyrocket again. And that's the thing I think they have to avoid. Right. So I I want a a little bit of science here. A new PNAS article came out, and this is what I was referring to when I said increasingly people are saying it's, it's airborne and that masks make a difference. Now, PNAS is one of the world's most prestigious journals. At the same time, it can be controversial. Some stuff gets in there that people don't love. At any rate, a very well-published article just came out. And they, they say that they're able to identify mask as the real important mechanism here, that it's not stay-at-home orders. It's not social distancing. It's masks per se. All they're doing is looking at data and when orders came in and they're looking at it at like three different epicenters, but they come down strongly on the side of the effectiveness of masks. Now where I think that connects to what Eric is saying is let's see people live by that. Let's yeah. see people actually, okay, right. fine. Don't stay at home, but you have to conduct yourself differently. I, and I yeah. think we, this has been kind of a running theme throughout the last few months as we've been discussing this, this kind of distinction between the actual policies that are put into place and what people actually are doing. And, you know, I, I would love to see, I don't know if they, that article goes into it, like it, whether there's any discussion of like, to the extent that there's like substantive differences in compliance between different area, different regions, that one doesn't, that like one whether, doesn't. whether, you know, is there data on that yet? And whether you would want to, you, you would presumably want to try and incorporate that into your analysis. So by, by the way, how do you, what, you know, that's, that can get kind of creepy. How can we have objective data on mask wearing? Do we want to, collected digitally automatically do we want to just do some like gumshoe kind of epidemiology where you're counting masks we, we don't have that kind of adherence on mask wearing it seems to be the most important thing and we don't have objective data 
Yeah, and I'm not quite sure where you would get that kind of data. I mean, certainly like retail stores, presumably maybe, you know, would be keeping track of how many times, you know, things like how many times they have to tell people to put masks on as they come into their businesses versus not. But I I don't know what kind of data you'd actually have on mask wearing. I'm not sure why. I mean, maybe you guys have a reason to believe this, but let me put on my marketing professor hat for a second. Um, We survey people all the time about behaviors. I have no reason to believe that we couldn't survey people about mask wearing behavior and get some population level estimates of- yeah, Eric, would, would you trust more what they reported about their own behavior or what they observed in other people? It's a great question. Actually, since if we want to bring research in, this is exactly what my colleague, John McCoy does, did his PhD dissertation research on, is that you get much more accurate answers, not asking people about themselves, but about what they think other people are going to do and what Mm. they observe in other people's behavior. So you could, you could ask both of those questions and I see no reason. I'll go to what Adi has been saying every week for the last 12 or 15 weeks since you don't need that larger sample to get fairly accurate estimates. Just like if you're asking about voting behavior in the upcoming election, you can ask about mask wearing behavior, you and others. No, and you wouldn't need that large of a sample kind of like I think in any one locate region, but you would need quite a bit of different, you know, the regional heterogeneity I think is such a key uh, part of this that you would really right. need to kind of try and cover the nation with this and definitely like have a representative sample in a lot of different kind of regions of the country. Because I think that kind of, at least the anecdotal, you know, sort of evidence is that uh, that kind of compliance is because it's become so politicized and everything else is, is very different in different regions of the country. Right. Right. Gentlemen, what else around the world of coronavirus? I saw an interesting article this past week on another, in another journal. This was a pre-peer review, but it was a serious article about the impact, the efficacy of uh, plasma, this plasma treatment. They call it, they call mm-hmm. it in, in the, they call it convalescent plasma. So we, we probably all know some people who have gotten sick and then one of the ways they contribute afterwards is they go give plasma which is a big deal giving plasma is not like giving blood it's like a much more time intensive thing and um everyone thought well this is this great thing so people have they haven't done many trials on this thing they finally do a randomized trial on the efficacy of it and it turns out that the big challenge is by the time they get to people they already have the antibodies in them so you're supposed to be benefiting their blood by giving them blood with antibodies to fight it but by the time they identify them and put them in the trial yeah. and give them the plasma, they've already got they've already got as much antibody as the plasma. And so they ran a few hundred people tracking all these things, and they they didn't see enough difference in mortality to keep going. And they attributed it to the fact that the folks that they were enrolling already had. It's just it's this very disappointing result, is what I'm reporting. Is now again, it's it's pre-review, so it's early, and it's one of the first tests. But it's it's one of the first control studies of this of this treatment. Well, so let me, let me elaborate because I think what you're describing is something we've seen already in other drugs. The way that this illness kills people is with the cytokine storm and your immune, immune system just basically eats, eats yourself up. And the convalescent plasma is given to people who are being killed by their own body. They already have antibodies because they've already beaten back the virus so successfully that, that the, your immune system is attacking itself. I would alternate, I mean, a, I mean, propose another hypothesis that convalescent plasma might be much more beneficial almost on an outpatient basis um, for people who might potentially, and this is the problem, you have to predict that they're going to get sick. Oh, early on. Has it, has so, it been shown that like somehow no one does anti, this. A foreign, like, uh, somebody else's antibodies into you somehow calms this cytokine? Like it no, it won't. Somehow... I don't think it's working for that. I think what, what Cade was telling us is that it doesn't work for the most sick people because it doesn't have anything to do with the cytokine storm. But perhaps or I'm essentially arguing that maybe the right place to give it is people who are just becoming sick or predicted to get very sick and that becomes a puzzle because if you ask your, if, if you look at the most people who are on an outpatient basis, people who get diagnosed may have some mild symptoms, the best prediction for those people is you're going to be okay. Yeah, right. right? And so you're going to, it's like, it's like relief pitching. Like it's when do you bring in Mariana Rivera? Do you wait and use it or do you hold on to it? It's a resource right. management. Right. And so right. I'm, and so there's a lot of emphasis on our medical system early on was try to go after the sickest people. And we've already learned that most of the sickest people are really hard to save. And we have a good result with the steroid. That seems to be working. Um, It's actually kind of interesting because now they're learning more about the steroid. The steroid seems to be um, best to be given when people are in the cytokine storm really bad. When people are early, you want to actually give an immune booster, 
not, not um, necessarily the last mm-hmm. thing you want. And then mm-hmm. there's this crazy point, point where it has to switch, and they're trying wow. to figure out when that is. Wow. And so that's really th- – these are the puzzles that the medical, medical community is really faced with, and maybe they could use analysts to sort of predict you're going to have a bad result. You should get the plasma and try a study there. Yep. Yeah, I think what Adi's saying, it, actually, it feeds directly into what I was going to comment on, which is the things that I'm hearing about from the medical community that sound the most optimistic are these, in some sense, the same way that people have described how they battle HIV today. There is no vaccine for HIV. They give you a cocktail of things, and they give you the cocktail of things at the right times and in the right proportion and the right doses. Now, of course, mm-hmm. we all know it's easy to sit there now and say that exists, but that took years for them to figure out what are the right drugs and the right combinations. And as Adi's pointing out, not even just in the right combination, in the right, when should you give each one? And what I'm hearing is, I'm still hearing, I just heard from three different head of infectious disease today. If you think a vaccine is coming soon, you're probably wrong. If you think a very effective vaccine is coming soon, you're almost certainly wrong. But if you think a cocktail of things could come by the end of the year, that could dramatically diminish the degree of severity, meaning yeah. death for sure, but possibly right. even hospitalization. They said, that's more realistic. But again, I, I, they didn't use the word puzzle, but I'll use Adi's word puzzle. They're trying to figure out, like, can we just throw every drug at this? Which ones and when? Yeah. It's still a big combinatorics problem that they're still having trouble pinning down. Super interesting. And it's, I think it's helpful to think about treatment that way. I, I have to say, guys, I, I heard... If, if you happen to, you might listen to the daily on Mondays. The daily was about some things we've learned about the coronavirus. And I didn't know a couple of them. And in particular, he reported that it's not a respiratory thing. It's a vascular thing. And that, that it, it's not just going attacking your lungs. It gets in through the lungs, but then it goes to anywhere it wants to. It can attack your brain or your kidneys. And so the more he kind of unpacked it, the less I wanted this thing, you know, so you, we, we need to not normalize getting it or what the experience will be or be too um, cavalier because there's going to be a cocktail available at, at the end of the year. When you understand the, the, the range of maladies that can come along with this thing, even with the cocktail available, you're still well suited to just best not get it at all. Shane, you, you uh, noted this piece in the Times about an algorithm of course, everything's an algorithm. There's a headline. The headline says algorithm. Yeah. Algorithm predicting the pandemic's next move. Would you like this article? Well, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I'm not sure I actually, you know, I, I think it's interesting just kind of given the context of previous attempts in kind of this domain. So, like, it, it's basically, it's summarizing uh, the, the work of a lot of different groups. So there was a focus on this one Harvard group that's basically using predictive modeling to try and predict the next kind of, like, where outbreaks are about to occur based on things like Google search, you know, social media communication, as well as Google searches by, by people in that area. And it just kind of has an echo from like, you know, like many, several years ago, when there was a lot of press uh, towards this kind of Google, Google flu trends, right. kind of, kind of, you know, basically attempt to do this same thing. The Google flu trends thing ended up being mostly kind of a failure because, right. you know, there, there wasn't really, it, it didn't actually perform particularly well and it was not kind of acting on sort of the time scale or geographic scales that would be kind of useful for practitioners. Um, and the article does kind of mention that, you, you know, it, it, the article does mention that, you know, the, the kind of Google flu trend version of this several years ago, um, you know, was, was, did, did not perform well. But, you know, there, there, there at least still was some promise in the article that, A, coronavirus is probably pretty different than the flu, so it's not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison. But also, you know, we have kind of the lessons learned from that right. previous attempt right. and also- in mind when we do this. So, so uh, it, you know, back to Eric's cocktail, or the statisticians are going to call it an ensemble, yep. whereas Google was probably just basing it on Google searches. These guys are using Google searches as one input, but they're also, there's some database where doctors make queries and they have access mm-hmm. to that. They yep. are using uh, mobile phone data for tracking. And there's some fourth thing that I, I forget what it is right now, but it's definitely kind of an ensemble approach. And I was a little skeptical. I'm, I'm reading about halfway down. I'm going, this is just the newspaper making a, you know, making more of it than it actually is. But then they quoted, they quoted a doc down at Texas who's, um, who's been at the middle of their consortium efforts. I think her name's Lauren Ansel Myers, Lauren Ansel Myers. And she's 
serious epidemiologist, and she seemed to give it at least a, a enthu- some, some enthusiasm. And so it, yeah. it, it has me taking it a, a little bit more serious. But real quickly on this, um, they made a prediction. This was a nice feature of the article. They said the next hot spot or the next uptake is likely to be, I think it was Nebraska and Iowa, Nebraska and Iowa. Eric. Is there any reason why, as statisticians, we can't just treat this like, I mean, maybe it's an oversimplification, but like whether it's a high-dimensional classification problem or, if you'd like, a high-dimensional ordinal regression problem. And when I say high-dimensional, meaning we have a lot of possible drugs, so those are a set of variables. We have a lot of possible doses for those drugs. That's another set of variables. We have um, timing. We have in what combination. We have heterogeneously and to which population. This sounds like a classic, if you like, you know, small n, large p problem of which we're interested in all possible combinations of various factors that may, if you like, probabilistically send you to one bin, hopefully a lower severity bin versus a higher one. Um, Isn't this, like if we had the data, and we can argue about that, but if we had the data, isn't this the kind of machine learning penalized regression types of things we're doing all the time right now for lots of different business and other problems? Yeah, and it is like most machine learning attempts at this and that people are completely ignoring the selection bias, the selection mechanisms that go into the data when they're fitting those models. That's the key thing, right? I mean, if if, if we were randomly assigning across all that, like all the cells of that (laughs) contingency table, we'd be able to really learn something. God damn, we would. Let me just follow up but, with that. I mean, to Shane, you're, if we could, it seems crazy, but if we could just sort of randomly assign physicians to pick patients and throw shit at it and then go collect all that data, we might actually be able to get some, then use the analysis to uncover something. But that's not what's happening. In fact, what's worse is that it's all correlated. And there's a couple of things that people are going down. They're all looking at it. And then we wait two months or a month or whatever it is. And then people go, oh, that didn't work. And then they go all together in one other direction. Well, I will say this. I mean, that's I, that's all fair and true, but medicine is so much faster about running studies and getting it out in front of people than, than our disciplines are. I mean, good Lord. I mean, they, they, and we can cuss it sometimes and they get it wrong sometimes, but they're actually trying to produce these things pretty quickly. And to have these randomized control trials from around the world on this thing, you know, on multiple, you know, treatments is actually pretty impressive, I would say. I mean, most oh, of it. Most and I, I, I don't want to. I, I think I came across as overly negative with with with, with my. Story. I mean, I think there is learning that can happen here, and obviously, learning is happening. But I, I think what is impeding that learning is kind of as Audie said, like that fact that we have so, so so much sort of selection bias and who gets what treatment. Maybe just to wrap up Audie's point, I think Audie would rather have a small scale randomized experiment than a big database with a bunch of bad data. Well, mm-hmm. he's going to have to live with both, but I, I, it's a good lesson for us in general. All right, fellas, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We'll still have. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition. This is what we're doing in the age of pandemic. Virtual coming to you via Zoom. The whole crew is here. Eric Bradlow, professor of stats and marketing. Adi Weiner, professor of stats. Shane Jensen professor of stats and Cade Massey here, practice professor in the OID group. We um, have been talking a little bit of coronavirus. We like to do that in the first half of the show, set the stage that is the stage for sports these days. Also lots of interesting statistical puzzles to play with, try to improve our understanding of the world we're living in. But now let's be a little bit more sports specific. There are sports happening. Before we get to sports, let's let Eric have us a moment about uh, Coney Island. Well, it's not about a moment, it's sports. Um, so, and we've had him on the show, of course, is Joey Chestnut. Um, I want to say something about, obviously, for people that didn't pay attention, we obviously still had the hot dog eating contest um, this on July 4th, but it was very different. And I want to put a tremendous asterisk next to the world records that were set. So Joey Chestnut set the world record for men by eating 75 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Uh, Mickey Sudo set it for the women by eating, I think it was 48, maybe 48 and a half. But... This shows you the difference a year makes. Let me comment on a couple things. One, there were only five competitors in each division. They had them separate. First of all, it was indoors. They had them separated by plexiglass. There were no fans. There were just people that, you know, that would put the hot dogs in front of them and two announcers or three announcers. Now, you might say, well, what big difference does it make? Well, a couple things. Number one, 
Um, last year, you may remember, I may, it, you know, if wagering were legal, I may have had a few dollars based on the under on Joey Chestnut last year. And that's because it was 94 degrees in Coney Island. And you remember, by the way, um, I bet under 72 last year. Joey Chestnut had 50 after five minutes and ate 20 in the last five minutes because the heat got to him. Well, it was 74 degrees, no sun, no wind, controlled temperature. This, to me, is an absolute – I think he's in decline. I think he's past his prime age. I think he should have eaten a lot more than 75. And as a matter of fact, by the way, his pace tremendously slowed down at the end. And I think if it had been 90 degrees outside, which it was, if they had done it outside at, you know, Park and Stillwater or wherever the, the – I think he would have eaten 60 hot dogs. Wow. Yeah. So wow. there's I, – I mean – New York, uh, New York in, in early July is always hot and sticky to a certain extent, but there must be enough variation over the historical data yeah, and temperature, humidity, where you could actually sort of see whether how much of a connection there is between that and people's kind of performance, right? Well, the problem is, the problem is, of course, Shane, you do have the, you know, if you want to call, I'm not going to call it momentum, you have non-stationarity, right? So, as a matter of fact, they did show the following. They showed what was the record number of hot dogs eaten, like in the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. So how do you know what's trend versus, you know, people can just eat more hot dogs because they have better training methods? Or how do you know what's the temperature on a given day? You could certainly take a window. You could certainly look at the last. But then you have a small amount of data to actually answer that question. Either way. It well, my pithy response would be a regression model would presumably help you to separate out, you know, you could have both time trends as well as temperature in there and try and sort of see, you'd be, you're basically asking like, you know, what Joey Chestnut sort of given his, tre- you know, recent trends, what his kind of hot dog eating above expectation would be. And then yeah, whether temperature have, though, has the a factor is, in that. Yeah, you also have the age trajectory. So he's mm-hmm. now, I mean, he's won 13 times. So he's passed Bill Russell for the greatest winner in the history of sports. Um, yeah. yeah, right. That's that's what happened. That's, that's right. That's right. But put him on the pantheon of greatest, the greatest sports winner legends. in the history of sports. He is. And, um, but he is 36 years old now, which is thought to be uh, beyond the prime time of the election. By who, Eric? Thought to be. Thought to be. Who's, who's thinking? I mean, we know Roger Federer is still what we know. Yeah, Roger. we could have a late career renaissance in hot dog eating, <laughs> same as anything else. We know, we know Kareem won a title at 42. We know Roger Federer is still winning majors at 38, was a point away from winning one at almost 39. So yeah. um, it could okay, be. Here's, here's a question for you. Is Pat Mahomes still going to be winning Super Bowls at age 36? So he That's just a great signed. Question. He just yeah. Signed, how, many, how many years? At what age? Well, it was ten years. But let's be clear: it's ten years above the two years he already had. So he's yeah. twenty-four. He signed for you know with incentives five hundred and three million. But it's always in football. You've told me this a thousand times, kid. That's not the real number because they can cut him. It's three years guaranteed above his two years, and so he's basically and the three is big though, right? The three is like one hundred and twenty million or something. Right. I, I thought it was ninety something million was guaranteed. Okay. okay. But either way, oh, I, I, th- I no, thought well, he, he's got one hundred and twenty million guaranteed over the next five years. He's yeah, already right. got thirty million plus another ninety million, mm-hmm. essentially guaranteed. Yeah. Um, he has outs. The team has outs. Um, yeah. I mean, I I don't see any reason if he stays healthy that he can't be a Super Bowl winning quarterback at age 36 there's no reason why he can't be well i and i think this is the kind of question i you know i immediately when i sort of heard that he's going to definitely be in you know kansas city for the next 12 you know well, let's say he he's he's in kansas city for the next 12 years let's say how many super bowls do you think they win tell me this how many years is andy Reid going to coach yeah no, that's, would, that, that's an excellent question. Of, of that Pat Mahomes is there. I'd let them wheel me out there. What? Right. But I mean, you know, think about they, they just won a Super Bowl with Pat Mahomes and looked very impressive doing it. But he was making what, whatever, $4 million or whatever he was. It, him making $45 million, as good as Pat Mahomes is, is going to very much constrain that team as far as who they can kind of surround him with. I, I think that's right. not something you know, something that needs to be emphasized. Is that the, that ridiculous contract, even yeah. with like you know, even if the salary cap goes up, is going to be something that Kansas City is going to struggle to kind of build around. Okay, so well, hold on, hold on. You just called it a ridiculous contract. Well, I don't think. No, I mean it's ridiculous only in that it's an incredibly large sum of money. I don't okay. think it's actually okay. a bad contract. 
Okay. You know, uh, by any stretch. I mean, honestly, if he's there for the, you know, I mean, if I was a Kansas City fan, I'd be pretty happy about it because he was going to, you know, I mean, he he certainly, I think, is going to be worth for most of those years in the 30 to $40 million. Right. Uh, it's just that, you know, in a with a hard salary cap, that does constrain what you can do with the team around him. Yep. You guys, tell me quickly, what is the rates at which quarterback salaries are growing? So he's $45 million in three years. But in five years, that might be a bargain. They're they're probably not growing any differently than the salary cap in general. They might have they might take a they might take a higher percentage now than they used to. They almost certainly do, but not that much more than the salary cap. And in general, the salary cap is a fast growing thing. I mean, it's going to be two hundred million this year. I think mm-hmm. it wasn't that long ago. It's probably going to it's probably going to be pretty stable. I don't think it's going to grow very much in the next couple of years, but more generally it has been growing quite a bit. I think an interesting, an interesting given, I didn't know the number was two, let's say it's 200 million, which could be right. I think Adi, a nice way to think about it is you have one person taking 20% of the salary cap. Yeah. And that's 2% of the roster roughly. Yeah. So he's get he's worth 10 players is the way you have to think about it in terms of the average part of the salary cap, you know, each per, this 52 man roster, whatever, yeah. roughly 2% a person, and he's over 20%. So that's the challenge that they face. And I agree with Shane um, in my view, I agree with Shane. It's a challenge, but the salary crap will grow. Um, he to me seems incredible. If you ask me over under um, I'm putting, I think I'll say the following. I would take the over that he will win more than one and a half more Super Bowls. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. I so think you're predicting two more. At least two more. Under yeah. this contract. Well, obviously, two or yeah, more. I, I'm predicting at least two more under this contract. Yes, I think yeah. he'll get to at least three. I'd say the best guess would be somewhere between three to four Super Bowls by the time his career is over. How many NFL quarterbacks have won three to four Super Bowls? That was my question. That's oh, pretty easy. Four? So five? we have yeah, well, we have Tom Brady, obviously, at six. We have Terry Bradshaw and Joe Montana um, at four. Um, I'm not sure we have any, but maybe maybe um, Bart Starr would be at three or somebody somebody in the early days, if you count also their NFL championships. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. um, well, Aikman, Aikman uh, has three. Troy Aikman for the yeah, Cowboys. Troy Aikman has three. <laughs> there might only be. There might only be. So, Roth- Roth- I'm going to just jump in and Roth- say that Roethlisberger has a has two, has two, 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 and the both Mannings have two. Yeah, but three is sort of a. a can I yeah. can I think that say that Eric? I think that that's a pretty lofty prediction then. More than, than that, so few have three yeah. in the now, history of the game. But Adi did three. He's got yeah. one already, right? So how many of them had? How many of them had one before they were twenty-four? By the His time early career trajectory is unprecedented. Yeah. unprecedented. Okay, okay. I, I have to tell you. I'm convinced to take the under on that. No, I mean, I mean, there's plenty of arguments for the under. There, you know, there's no guarantee he's going to have uh, good coaching for that entire time. You know, I mean, yep. um, and and it is hard to hold. You know, he's going to be taking up. A, it's going to be harder to construct a good team around him, even with the best minds doing it. And they mean they may not have the best minds doing Guys, it. T- even in the next couple of years, their defense, you know, holding that defense together will be difficult. To, 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 if we're going to model this and forecast it isn't there, isn't there some autocorrelation that we have to keep in? Like when we don't, we tend to see streakiness in great franchises in the NFL. And if that's true, does that change your prediction here? So am I, am I wrong to think that's true? I don't think so. And if it is true, wouldn't you want to then, wouldn't you say, well, if that's true, conditional on seeing a Super Bowl, our prediction for the, for the number is going to go up. Because yeah, or, or, or another way of saying that, like you know, Eric's prediction. If I, t- Eric, if you, you, if I told you, you know, with your prediction that he wins like another two in his, in that time, if I told you he does not win another one in the next five years, do you change your prediction uh, for the? Absolutely, and let me just comment here that I think. Look, I thought. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Shane. Um, Brady won three, and then a long gap, and then three, right? Three and three. Correct. Yeah. If you had told me after, I think it's 10 years, at least, in between winning Super Bowls. If you tell, because he lost two. It was 04 to 2014. Yeah, if you tell me in between, if you tell me that Mahomes does not win one in the next, I'll call it three to five years, absolutely. 
my prediction would go down. Absolutely. Yeah. I think he better win at least – if I'm going to get to the number more than one and a half, he better win at least one. And Look, if you had told me we'd be sitting here and I consider the greatest quarterback of the last 10 years to be Aaron Rodgers, if you told me he was still sitting here at one, yeah, I think he won his first Super Bowl at age 24 or 25 or maybe it's 26, I'd be like, how is that possible that Aaron Rodgers only has one? So let, me, let me jump in, I think, because I think what is the question that, that Kate is asking here is that it's got to be streaky. So I would argue that he's got his best probability of picking up the next one in the next one to three years, right? That's where they come in. Yes. And I would argue that even, and I'm just throwing out an, an estimate here, that in the next you know, three years, I think he's 50% to win one more, not – 80% to win one more. And then, so to get to two as an, as an expected value uh, or a median value, not the expected value, because he could, he could have five, right? So as a median value, I think that's a pretty good long shot bet because he'd have to win one quickly. And then, and then, and probably presumably unless he gets to two with the, this current dynasty, which I think is, it's not even a dynasty. There's one, one game, one, one Super Bowl. It'd have to become a dynasty. I think that's a pretty, I have no pretty big bet. But I, but I, but I, think, I think Eric's calculation, whether – I mean, we're kind of fleshing it out right now. And I actually agree with Eric. I would take the over. It's based on this predication that if it's going to happen, it's probably – we you know, we're predicting that we're seeing kind of the start of a dynasty here. And, I mean, it's a prediction. It's not guaranteed to happen, certainly. But, the, you know, Absolutely. they have all the pieces there I'll for dynasty. But I like the – But I, I, but I, I will say that the prop bet people – Love to take to go against the yes because the public loves the yes. Yeah, yeah so of, you would have no trouble getting a lot of action. You put yeah. that out there, and you got all kinds of takers on on your taking the downside. Um, I want to ask another question about potential dynasties. What is going on with Bryson DeChambeau? So he won he won the golf tournament this past weekend, and he did it in um, kind of dramatic fashion in that he just crushed the thing to death. So Eric, I know you're paying attention to this. Yeah, well, I mean. You know, he basically spent this COVID period putting on 40 pounds of muscle. Um, so he's he, like, he's like 6'1", 240. Six correct. One, this guy's got, he correct. Can, he's only yeah. a few years out of school. If you compare us, I, I, I've had a similar COVID period, but without the muscle part. Yeah. Yeah, he's only 26 <laughs> years old. Um, he hit his average drive last week, I believe, was 349 yards. Um, there was a par four, 390 where he actually told the group to wait to, to clear the green. He was going to go for it and then decided there was no reason since he was leading, but he was planning on driving a 400-yard par 40. Be clear. He, he, he waited for the group ahead of him to leave the green before he correct. teed off on a 399-yard par 4. That is correct. And so, you know, if, if he can – and by the way, he doesn't look like one of these muscle-bound stiff guys. I mean, you know, if you looked at the guy, you would say – yeah, the guy looks like Popeye, but Popeye with a belly. I mean, it's not like the guy's missed. I mean, maybe he's ripped, but I don't know. He looks like a guy who's not, like, going to destroy his body by hitting the ball 350. And let me tell you, again, we talked about this on the show when we've had golf people on. If he's hitting it 350 and he's hitting it 120 yards into the green and someone else is hitting it 300 and they're hitting it 170 yards in the green, he's hitting a pitching wedge. And they're hitting a six or seven iron. And that's a huge, huge difference. In other words, his distance to the pin could be four to five feet shorter on average on greens and regulation. And that's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would be interested to hear more about his regimen. I can imagine that training and even putting on you know, strength training, putting on muscle like that is different these days than it would have been. 10 or 15 years ago like he must have people telling him the particular kind of strength to put on for golf or the right um flexibility exercises Absolutely. to do along with it in order to maximize he doesn't care about deadlifts he cares about how far he can drive the ball which is a very specific kind of training yeah it's it's rota it's so it's kind of known a little bit it's obviously it's rotational speed and it's torque it's not pure it's not like he maybe he can deadlift 500 i have no idea but that's not the kind of power you need to generate. What's also interesting about Bryson DeChambeau, you guys may have forgotten, he's known as the professor in golf. I don't know if you know yeah. this. All of his clubs are the same length. Well, I wanted to hear that because when he first hit the tour, I think he played at SMU. He first hit the tour and he was already getting attention. But one of the reasons he got attention was this very different kind of engineering approach to the game. Could you, can you remember the logic behind the all the clubs are the same length thing? I think his view was 
he didn't want to have to, he wanted it to perfect one swing and swing every club the same way. So his logic was, why am I taking a different angle trajectory arc from a longer club, which typically is the driver, et cetera, and a shorter club like the nine iron? He goes, I want to take the same swing no matter what the club length is. And Eric, has he maintained that philosophy all the way? His bag is still, still looks that way? His bag is exactly the same. And that's so the ball is the same part of his stance no matter what club he's using? This is super fascinating. That's a good question about whether his distance from the ball, yeah. um, but you would imagine, Shane, the reason you typically take a longer distance from the driver is because the club is longer. Yeah. So I, but I don't know whether he takes the same I mean, it's also the angle, what you want to hit it at and stuff, too. There's Flat. other stuff involved. Wait, but... so, so let me get, make this clear, because I, I know enough about physics to know that the longer, the, longer the, the, the club, the more torque, and the more torque, more power, obviously you probably lose control. He's able to generate 349 average yard. I think that sounds very high. I don't know the, exactly the reference. Extraordinarily but, high. Um, without a particularly long golf club, that's, that sounds amazing. He must be giving something up, or, or is he just have oh, these you incredible – He's called the professor. I mean, he's just you – know, he just <laughs> yeah, excels yeah. at this. So, so it could be right, that right. his irons are the same length, but that his driver and his woods are a little long. That could be. Could, uh, could okay. Be. All right, driver. No, that's yeah. against the – it's not quite as pure a philosophy. It's, yeah, it's still – Yeah, it's still impressive. And yeah. look, again, um, you know, I don't want to Aaron Rodgers the guy – but let's, you know, it's nice to win the, you know, the Travelers Open. You know, he hasn't won a, he hasn't won a major. Let's see him. Uh, shockingly, he, I think, I know he passed Tiger Woods maybe as a favorite to win, maybe even the Masters now. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you know, so the guys won, you know, the guys won a tournament and now all of a sudden we have him like the number two or three favorite. Right. Obviously they believe in, you know, whether it's non-stationarity, momentum, serial dependence. Um, they obviously think he's a, a hot golfer right now because his odds, he's now like one of the top three favorites for all of the majors this year. Do you think this will lead to another, uh, another sh- shift in, in, in physical fitness in golf? I mean, Tiger Woods did that already 15 years ago, changed the game of golf. I mean, when we grew up, we were watching Craig Statler, you know, win these things. And now then the next generation gets Tiger Woods and it changes everything. But he's saying, yeah, I see what you've done, Tiger. I'm going to one-up you. Is that the way this is going? I mean, not from one win at the, at, at a major at a tournament, but if this guy and another about let's talk about another guy who won, who's won a few tournaments lately, Brooks Kepka, right? I mean, the guy's the size of a polar bear with massive forearms, <laughs> you know, incredibly bulked up, spends a huge amount of time in the weight room. So um, the answer is, yeah. I mean, I think if you're going to see continually the Brooks Kepkas and the Bryson DeChambeau's, if these guys are going to start winning, the Tony Finau, who's yet to win a major, but he's won a lot of terms. If these guys that are, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 230, 240, start winning 70% of the tournaments, while you can't get taller, you can get bigger and stronger. And I think you will see that. It's amazing because golf, golf historically, some of the great golfers have not been, not only not big, but they haven't even been very tall. And, and there's I think, even an argument to be made that the compact swing is helpful because it helps. And I, I think it's going to be really interesting kind of, you know, from Tigers on to sort of track the sort of age trajectory of golfers now versus golfers of old as well. Because, I, you, you know, I mean, you could imagine that like certain body types – that like maybe do like if you really bulk up to get this extra driving distance earlier in your career, does that have downstream repercussions about how your body ages later Super in your career? Right. Would, would we still be watching John Daly if we'd had tracking yeah. and sufficient coaching and all that I'm stuff? Not, I back think he in the might day. not have been. He might not have been into Adi's deliberate practice. I think the length at which the growth rate at which people are hitting golf balls is growing a lot faster than the growth rate of the length of courses. And so that's another thing that's changed dramatically. Right, right, right. Okay, fellas, in the last couple of minutes we have here, what are you thinking and feeling about the other sports? We've got three sports that are trying to get off the ground. One quick update. The NHL has one of the, they they did this interesting thing. They extended the collective bargaining agreement. So in order to figure out the finances are so complicated in the NHL that they've had to basically, the thing wasn't going to expire until 2022, but they added, they added a whole other contract on top of it in order to provide the latitude to make all the financing work. And I think this speaks really well for the partnership that the league has with the players and um, for the prospects of actually getting this thing done. So I, I'm feeling good about – I had NHL top 
of the major sports I'm most likely to actually play a season. And um, they've picked Vancouver and Edmonton, I mean, Edmonton and Toronto as the hubs. And they're moving along for late July. Um, I feel less good about what's happening in both the NBA and uh, M- and MLB. I mean, how are you? Are you guys staying awake at night wondering whether you're going to have any baseball to watch? Uh, I'm not staying awake. Um, I probably should be, <laughs> quite honestly. I'm hearing good things. I mean, I'm hearing from the people at the teams that they're, they're going back to work. Everybody's going out there playing. They don't seem to be um, changing their plans based on a fairly large uh, a number of positive tests. You know, 28 out of the 3,000 that got tested or 1% or so. There's still a whole bunch more that have yet to have been returned. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, as I said, I think it'll take – something big to happen before this get not get knocks them off the course. I think MLB and NFL, given they're going to be traveling into cities and everything else, I think there's a low probability that they're but, going to make, in my view, that they're going to make it. The NBA is disheartening as well. I mean, the, the, I think the Mavericks had to shut their practice facility. The Kings had to shut their practice facility. We've had guys opt out. I mean, in baseball, you might lose a guy. It doesn't seem great, but you've got a 25 man roster. In basketball, you've got, you know, seven or eight guys that play meaningful minutes, and it starts feeling like a big deal. When Their practice facilities haven't been in a bubble, right? That's correct. So yeah, that's correct. I'm saying once you throw everybody in the bubble and you test them 18 times in the first couple of weeks, and then you, in some sense, if you want, you could technically, you could restrict their ability to leave the bubble, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, I think you have a fighting chance there. But, of course, again, as we've talked about, staff still people that you know do the serving and everything else those people are going in and out of the bubble um you know this i i I hear you i hear you and also the nba generally has its shit together and they've got a pretty good working relationship between the commissioner and the players association so yeah yeah i can get a little bit more i mean i think the two things that argue for sort of the nhl and nba being ultimately more successful this year than MLB is, is I, I think kind of the structure of things. I, I agree. This kind of bubble format is going to make things, I think just logistically easier. And there does just seem to be a low, a greater amount of trust between, I mean, the, the, the player, the essentially the players in the league and right. the MLB, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that even if they do get off, that so many of the marquee kind of players that we are, are, are going to opt out. Yeah. Right. No, the, seriously, there's, and that starts affecting, you know, it affects the meaningful meaningfulness of the games. So when we should have games to talk about, though, in just like three weeks, we're going to be like game time across these. 23rd, I think, is the opening yeah, day. The 23rd is the opening yeah, for yeah. the Yankees uh, Nationals. All right. I don't know. I, you know, I saw Tanaka take one to the head in a, in a That, that was unfortunate. We've already had a, a, a new spring training <laughs> accident right, right, right. for the, for well, the that's, Yankees. Well, that, that's a whole different conversation on how we, what we expect injuries to do. The NFL – PA has worked up about this now. They're mm-hmm. negotiating the startup time and the number of preseason games, and they're all concerned about injuries because previously when there was reduced off-season workouts, they ran into a bunch of injuries. And so lots to navigate yet. We're going to be holding on with both hands for the next few weeks to see if we can get these things off the ground. All right, guys, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week. We'd love to have you here. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, 